0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, your source for mostly civil discussions about theology, philosophy, literature, and other things that human beings do well. Join us each week for our conversations and visit our website at christianhumanist.org, where you can email us, read our blog, and order merchandise paying homage to the most important Christian thinkers of the past two millennia. And now, the hosts of the Christian Humanist Podcast, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Hi, and welcome to episode twenty six of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I am this week's host, Michael Farmer. I am not an unemployed graduate student. I am a adjunct instructor of reading and writing at Tallahassee Community College. Joining us today, as always, is assistant professor of English at Emanuel College, Nathan Gilmore. How's it That's going, me. Nathan? Uh
1: yeah.
0: also joining us, graduate instructor of English at University of Georgia, David Grubbs. How's it going, yep. David?
1: I'm pretty good. Well, good. Got my Mountain Dew, so, you know, I'm happy.
0: (laughs) So if you're just, if this is your first episode of the Christian Humanist podcast, you may not know that we also have a blog, which you can uh, access at christianhumanist.org, and then you can click around on there and find it. Uh, This week on the blog, we have a couple of book reviews, one by Nathan, one by me, and uh, our new links post, which I think is going to be a regular feature if we can find enough interesting things on other websites to talk about. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Do we have uh, any interesting feedback this week, guys? Not that I can think of. There have been a few people who have commented on the YouTube clip on the links post. Uh, and Which I our recommend
0: listeners, to, to everyone.
2: If, if you haven't seen this YouTube clip, you really should. Uh, it is pretty great. Now, did did I read that right? Is that, was that, is that your alma mater? It is indeed. In fact, he was the <laughs> professor who taught me to read Erasmus, Luther, and Calvin, and he... Doesn't much like people who send text messages during class. None
0: of no, nobody does. <laughs> Unless it's a class on how to text message, and I'm not sure today's youths need such a class.
2: And see, I still can't use that as a verb, so that's how far behind I am. <laughs> well, in my our, mind, text is still a noun.
0: Our uh, our te- our uh, topic for today is friendship, so let's go ahead and get right into that, and uh, I will askew a long introduction and just jump right into the questions. Uh, I assume everybody listening listening to this has heard of friendship before. Nathan, (laughs) you've referred to Aristotle's position on friendship several times on the blog and the podcast. I know you go into some detail about it in the Why Christian Humanism section of the website, but I'm illiterate and my (laughs) wife's not around to read it to me. So I need you to explain what Aristotle thought of friendship and maybe talk about how his thoughts differ from others in the ancient world.
2: All right, well, to start with Aristotle, as Aristotle tends to do, uh, he breaks down friendship into a number of categories, Uh, just as he breaks down political constitutions into uh, monarchies and timarchies and aristocracies. Likewise, he breaks down friendship into a few categories. Uh, First of all, he says there are those friendships that are between unequals, uh, but those tend to be inferior to those friendships between equals. And then on the other hand, he says that there are uh, friendships that have to do with simple enjoyment, uh, or even for that matter, for, for some sort of material benefit, and those are all right. Uh, and actually, I reverse those. Then he goes to the ones that are for enjoyment. Those are better than the ones for material benefit. Uh, and then he goes into the highest form of friendship, which is friendship between equals for the sake of pursuing excellence together. You'll find all this, by the way, in the last couple books of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, books 8 and 9, if I remember right. Now, this is somewhat of a departure from some of the ancient Greek understandings of friendship. Uh, one of those I'm going to talk about a little bit later when I talk about Achilles and, and uh, Patroclus in Homer's Iliad. Uh, but, very notably, in the outset of Plato's dialogue, The Phaedrus... Uh, Phaedrus is re- rehearsing a speech that he's heard uh, regarding whether one should bestow one's favors, uh, and it becomes quite clear as the dialogue goes on, this means sexual favors, uh, to one who is in love with you or to one who is not in love with you. And one of the things that this speechmaker that Phaedrus is quoting uh, seems to be arguing, and it seems to be a fairly revolutionary claim in Phaedrus's mind, is that Friendship can exist at all without some sort of sexual contact. Now, by the time we get to Aristotle, that's really not part of the picture at all, but it seems to be there in the background, in Homer, in Plato, uh, there seems to be this idea that a true bonding of affection between equals is going to involve some kind of sex. Now, all of that said, by the time you get to Cicero in the Roman era, uh, you get frankly, a a very Roman-sounding treatise on friendship. Uh, And actually, it's not a treatise at all, but a dialogue. Uh, When Cicero talks about it, he puts it in the mouth of uh, Lilius, I think I pronounced that right, if not, my listeners can certainly correct me, uh, who was a friend of the famous general Scipio Africanus. And in his treatise, uh, friendship is almost exclusively a common pursuit of good things. And in fact, Cicero's uh, Laelius uh, goes on to assert that true friendship cannot exist except between two good men.
0: Well, Thank you, Nathan. When I was in Sunday school as a kid, we talked about friendship by looking at the story of David and Jonathan. Uh, David, what do you think their relationship tells us about friendship in the Hebrew Bible, since uh, it's it's usually helpful to oppose the, the Hebrews to the Greeks?
2: Mm. There you go again. <laughs>
1: um kind of a funny thing. I'll I'll begin with a brief excursus. Um, This particular story in the Bible has always been um, special to me because my best friend happens to be named Jonathan. And we were born within three months of each other. Our families uh, were living back to back to each other when we were born. And we have kept in contact pretty much all of our lives. We were in each other's weddings and um, still, whenever I go back to Alabama, I, I, visit, uh, I visit my friend Jonathan. So, has uh, his father ever
2: tried to kill you?
1: Yeah, his, <laughs> his father has never tried to kill me. Um, Uncle right, Kyle he hasn't
2: died in battle yet against the Philistines.
1: No, no, he has not okay, yet good, died good, in battle. Good. <laughs> yes, um, basically, once you uh, once you get past the whole BFF thing, there are absolutely no parallels. Um, I have not, you know, killed two hundred Philistines and taken their four skins to my Uncle Kyle in order to, you know, win his sister's hand in marriage. Um that would just be weird. <laughs> anyway, it's it's uh it's interesting the the whole pursuit of uh, pursuit of good things, pursuit of excellence idea that 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 Nathan just brought up because I'd never really thought about why David and Jonathan were friends. It just kind of says that they are. Um but if, if you're reading 1 Samuel in order, what you get in chapter 14, which is uh, before David and Jonathan uh, have met, you see Jonathan, the son of Saul, and his armor bearer um, basically heroically attacking an advantageous Philistine position up on top of a hill all by himself. And because God is with him, he trusts uh, to the Lord to deliver him. And because of, you know, his faith and his valor, the Philistines panic, um, uh, a fear which uh, the text says is laid on them by God, and it turns into a rout because, um, you know, this, this single young Hebrew man believes that God is with him and therefore basically charges into battle with one of the two swords that the Ar- the Hebrew army has, according to the text. Um, uh, the, the Philistines had control of uh, – the the smithing in in uh, in the region, and so uh, only day uh, only Jonathan and Saul had swords.
2: And later on, Peter ends up with both of them. I'm not sure how.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, sort of uh, uh, souvenirs of of the Old Testament <laughs> carried into the new. And Jesus told them to put them back. Anyway, I was struck by that uh, when thinking thinking about that that particular relationship, because then when you get into chapter 17 and David the little uh, David the shepherd lad faces down um the giant Goliath all by his lonesome and wins. and um I think because a lot of times Hebrew Bible is not Hebrew Bible's not giving you into you know interior monologues. No. It's not telling you a whole lot about what's going on inside people's heads. It's just kind of juxtaposing actions and well, I guess we can, you know, Try to infer things from that. But it seems to me that what leads to the friendship of Jonathan and David is that Jonathan sees in David someone, someone like him who trusts very much in the Lord and is, and also values personal courage very, very highly.'ve they've, they've got that thing in common. And so uh, while David still got Goliath's, you know head in his hands, and is being introduced to Saul. Um, at that point, it says that uh, you know Jonathan loved David as much as his own life. So, and that and, and that that seems to me, you know, that's that's the that's the basis of their friendship, that the pursuit of those particular excellences.
0: Now David, there's a kind of popular reading. I I imagine it arose uh fairly recently that that says David and Jonathan had a homoerotic or homosexual relationship of some sort um do you find any evidence for that in the text
1: actually since uh since uh early modern period at least David and Jonathan has been have been used as a literary allusion um to kind of covertly express um a a, uh, a homoerotic kind of relationship. You're right. You're I was right, thinking because, he was um, in.
0: Oscar Wilde used it in his hmm. trial for for buggery.
1: Mm-hmm. It was yeah. also used to describe Edward the relationship with, uh, well, the guy that his dad threw out the window in Braveheart.
2: Right, and I was thinking that it, <laughs> that that pair appeared in Spencer's Catalog of Lovers and Fairy Queen as well. Mm-hmm. So. So older than modern times.
1: Older than modern times. Lacuna. Uh, first, that when, uh, when Jonathan is first said to love David, um, he makes a covenant with David, and he takes his robe off and gives it to David. And that is sometimes read as, he disrobes for David. Also when Jonathan warns David that that his father Saul is basically irrevocably irrevocably opposed to David. There's no way that relationship is going to get patched up. He warns David to run off, hide, and when they say farewell, they kiss and they weep and then they leave. And then after David learns of of Saul and Jonathan's death, he composes a song, which, uh, you know, uh, apparently uh, it was kind of funny i looked it up apparently it had a tune called the bow um hmm. yeah which i i'm always kind of interested when i look at psalms and it has have those those little words in italics under the under the chapter heading that right. says to the tune of what you call i really mm-hmm. wish i knew that tune anyway solomon jonathan's song includes a line that says you know i grieve for my brother jonathan uh, you were very dear to me. Your love was wonderful and surpassed the love of women. And so, the the giving of the robe, which is sometimes phrased as disrobing, the kissing, and the your love surpassed the love of women, have been I think kind of mushed together and then read inside of a series of cultural assumptions that would be true today, or you know probably true today, at least in in our own culture. And reading that back on the culture that, that Jonathan and David were actually in.
0: It just always seemed like kind of a sad commentary on our world that we couldn't imagine a male, male friendship that wasn't wasn't some sort of cover for a, uh, a gay relationship.
1: Right. Well, first of all, it, it, it doesn't make any sense uh, to say that that David was gay. I, I don't think there's a character in the new, in the Old Testament that that in, that loves women more. Solomon. Okay, except Solomon.
0: <laughs> and he learned it from his pop.
1: Yes, he learned it from Pop, as apparently so did uh, well Amnon and Absalom and well the rest of his uh, Randy pack of sons. Um. Although
0: ironically, his son Randy was a uh, celibate monk.
1: <laughs> so. Uh, it, it, you know, you, you certainly can't read on it the, the kind of the, the absolute dichotomy of identification, which is the way we talk about sexuality today. You know, absolutely gay, absolutely straight. That that doesn't make sense.
2: Right. Um, I, I now, think you're onto something there, David. And I think that that short circuits a lot of more interesting discussion that could happen about those texts because, you know, if we divide it up and, you know, he either has to be. Gay, or he has to be straight. Uh, we miss, you know, the fact. Yeah, I mean, there's two conflicting facts that we just laid out. One, he's got at least seven wives. Uh, <laughs> and two, at least in that song, he seems to be saying that his emotional life is far more tied to Jonathan than it is to any of those wives. Right. And, I mean, I think that should trouble us a little bit, uh, even granting the cultural assumptions that are going into that, you know. But the thing is, we can't let it trouble us if we have to have one of those realities or the other, and we can't let both of them exist in tension. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I, I, I don't know that we even need to to infer something something sexual. Uh, if you no, if, not at all. I'm I'm yeah. talking
2: about emotional connection. Oh, I know,
1: I know, I know. Uh, I mean, if you, if you all look, right, all right. <laughs> if you look up kissing in a concordance, everybody's kissing everybody.
2: I mean, sure, oh, sure.
1: Lord of mercy, uh, you know. Um, you know the giving of a robe well given the, the, the fact that the the giving of the robe was followed also by the giving of a sword and a bow um
2: haven't you read your freud
1: yes uh, <laughs> i've read my freud but i don't think the author of first samuel had oh okay um god is outside of time david couldn't he have inspired a freudian
0: reading before freud existed
1: I have a hard time imagining the the infinite god inspiring a Freudian reading of anything. Um anyway, contempt, contempt uh, other yes, than the
2: jaws poster.
1: Yeah, well. <laughs> Lord of mercy. Uh, so anyway, I hope I no
0: potential employers ever listen to these podcasts.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know that's not going to happen. Um yeah, I, I, I think too much has been read into that, but certainly they have a relationship that's much closer and is much more, much more important to each of them than our culture is comfortable with existing between males.
2: Sure, that I can grant.
1: And uh, then the question you have to ask is, who's got the problem, them or us?
2: Well, and the other thing is, I think that coming from the other direction, if you will, I think that people are a little eager to read – greek norms onto them uh instead of thinking back to the genesis passage about marriage where they're sp- you know man and woman are supposed to be one flesh and to cleave unto one another and you know again i think that people oversimplify this text entirely too readily they want to fly over it they don't want to deal with the tensions that are going on there on the one hand you know it, 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 it's sort of that all or nothing mentality that drives me so nuts you know Either you have to commit to their being hundred percent gay in the modern sense, or you have to commit to, okay, this is just David saying bros before hoes. And, you know, <laughs> when he went home, when he be- went back home to Abigail, he had to say, no, baby, I was just kidding. I was just playing.
1: Even more than that. He had to go back home to Jonathan's sister. Good point. <laughs> All right, this is turning mar-
0: rapidly into a Jet Apatow movie, isn't it?
1: Yes, yes. He, he, he marries Jonathan's sister. You don't think she heard that song? You don't think he heard about it afterwards? Whose love surpasses mine? Excuse me?
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was poetic license. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, so in, in, anyway, don't think gay, but certainly...
0: Don't
2: dismiss the tension. Is that
1: all right? Yeah, don't dismiss the tension.
0: Well, let's get out of this quagmire and move from the (laughs) Hebrew Bible to the Christian Bible.
1: Uh, It
0: seems to me that one of the more radical things Christ does during Passion Week, where he does an awful lot of radical things, but one of the more radical is uh, he tells his disciples that they're no longer his servants, that they're his friends now. What's the distinction, Nathan? And are we Christ's friends too, or is he talking just to the disciples?
2: Yeah, I mean, the Gospel of John, I mean, just does wonderfully interesting things with a lot of the philosophical vocabulary of the day. And I mean, it helps to know a little bit of the Greek here. So let me get technical for just a minute here. Uh, When Christ talks about friendship here, he is using the word phileos, which is the same word that Aristotle uses all through books 8 and 9 of the Nicomachean Ethics for Friendship. Uh, also, when he talks about love in those dis- in those uh, passages in John, uh, he's using the term agape, uh, which would have referred to a very distinct kind of relationship, uh, namely, and most commonly, the relationship between the gods and their favored mortals. All right? So I mean, he is, <clears throat> you know, the writer of John is definitely aware of these vocabularies, as is Paul, uh, and they are definitely, bringing them to bear in ways that would have been troubling in the ancient world. So let me break down, I mean, the, the, the real radical character of these for a second. You know, when Jesus uh, tells people that, you know, God has agape for the entire world, uh, he is shaking up the expectations that are set up by Homer, among others, uh, where, for instance, Athena has agape for one mortal, Telemachus, and nobody else, all right? Uh, Also, when Paul says that we ought to have agape all love for each other, uh, he is basically extending his theology of the Holy Spirit and saying, we are basically the presence of the divine to each other. We can show that divine favor to each other. And in fact, we are called to show that divine favor to each other as a witness to the nations. Now, when we get to Phileos, you know, uh, Aristotle, like I said, made a distinction between uh, phileos between unequals, and his supreme example of that is, you know, uh, phileos between mortals and gods. Uh, and then he makes a distinction, you know, between that and phileos between equals, and he says the latter is superior. Well, Jesus here, you know, of course, in John, uh, all through the book, he has been building up to, you know, this final identification with with the divine. Uh, in John 17, when he has his so-called high priestly prayer. And when he says, you are not my servants, but you are my friends, again, an ancient Greek-speaking literate audience uh, would have heard that and said something radical and something new is going on here, right? Uh, All of a sudden, you know, God becoming flesh is completed there in that moment where all of a sudden God and mortals can be friends in the classical sense. So, Michael, I mean, this is, I mean, just a, a wonderfully radical distinction.
0: Let's uh, let's skip forward t- 2,000 years or so and talk about one of the most famous friendships in Christian history. I'm going to admit, publicly, that today's topic was suggested to me by a recent Kinley's Muse podcast about the relationship <laughs> among the Inklings, um, you know, the, uh, the Oxford intellectuals headed by C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, I recommend that podcast. Although apparently you can't download it at the time we're recording this, maybe it'll be uh, maybe it'll be back up by the time we uh, we go up. Anyway, David, what does uh, what do the Inklings have to say about friendship?
1: Well, the Inklings. First off, who they were. Um, they were a band of writers, both academics, and uh, in the case of, in the case of C.S. Lewis's older brother, someone who uh, mainly wrote on his own time but was still interested in scholarly things and in 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 writing as a craft they would basically gather and uh, read drafts to each other and offer criticism and feedback and kind of be a uh, an appreciative uh, appreciative and sometimes brutal first audience and it, started off with, at least according to one account I've read, the friendship of Lewis and Tolkien, though other accounts say that it was actually started uh, at, you know, there was a, there was an inklings before an inklings and that Lewis and Tolkien were the ones who who continued on the tradition after the first one passed when the guy who founded it graduated. Huh. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. But um, Lewis Tolkien, Lewis's older brother, Tolkien's son Christopher, the novelist Charles Williams, Oh, let's see. Other famous people, Dorothy uh, Sayers. Um, Dorothy Sayers is sometimes counted among them, but from what I've read, she never actually went to any meetings, but had mm-hmm. friendships with some of the people in the group. It was it was pretty uh it was pretty much a boys only club uh, at the Eagle and Child anyway, but certainly members of that group, especially Lewis, really appreciated Dorothy Sayers. As a scholar, as a thinker, and as a and, and as a person, and so she's frequently counted among them because she certainly was interested in the same kinds of things as them. So they would they would hang out at pubs, uh, most often the Eaglehead Child, or the Bird and Babe, and they would read things. Sometimes they would read uh, famously bad books and see who could he could, see who could get through a page without laughing, which is kind of fun. <laughs> the thing that brought them together was common interests they were interested in literature especially if you look at at lewis at tolkien at charles williams at oh another another guy that was in there um roger Lancelin green who wrote children's books but especially children's adaptations of mythology and sagas and legends they were very interested in myth they were interested in legend They were interested in sort of pushing the borders of imaginative fiction. Well, with the exception of Hugo Dyson, who famously hated elves. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So,
2: Are you going to recite the story about how much he hated
1: elves? Yeah, no, I'm not going to. I think we did that in the (laughs) fantasy episode. But yeah, he he could not abide the mention of more elves. And actually, (laughs) uh, Tolkien stopped reading the Lord, Lord of the Rings drafts to them mainly because Hugo Dyson was just so hostile. But uh, there's something that, that uh, Lewis says in uh, his book, The Four Loves, when, ta- when writing about uh, what you talked about, Nate, uh, phileo, uh, friendship. Uh, he says that friendship arises out of mere, companion, mere companionship when two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or t- even taste which the others do not share, and which till that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what? You two? I thought I was the only one. And it seems like the Inklings really did come together for reasons like that, these kind of common interests that they all loved pursuing together. And because what they were interested in was the excellence of the pursuit, it would sometimes end up with them being very brutal with each other when they thought that that an individual's pursuit of it was less than excellent right if that makes sense and i think uh the fruits of that of that critical friendship of that of that pursuit of excellence even if that meant sometimes uh, well chastising uh chastising each other for their particular you know prosodic foibles, I, I think the, re- the result is uh is is clear and what i see is the the excellence of what what literature the inklings produced so
0: all right, thank you, David. Well, this wouldn't be a Christian Humanist podcast if I didn't extemporize about existentialism. So uh, I hope. Yay! Uh, <laughs> well, it's the only thing I know anything Yay. about. So if you guys, uh, if you guys will uh, give me just a minute, I will uh, talk briefly. We need to have
2: an existentialism jingle.
0: <laughs> if one of our listeners wants to write and record that jingle, I will be happy to play it before I talk about existentialism. But. Um, actually, it does have a fair bit to say about friendship, and, and one of the more troubling aspects of that philosophy, particularly in the form championed by Jean-Paul Sartre, is the tendency to kind of glory in the isolation of the individual. It's kind of a blessing and a curse. It's clear, it's clear that, that there's a great deal of pain in Sartre from, from being so isolated, but at the same time, you don't get the sense he particularly wants connection with other people either. You see it pretty clearly in Being in Nothingness when he talks about isolation. But I think the place you, you really would go would be the play No Exit, where, where he says famously that hell is other people. And we talk about this in the hell episode, but I'm going to talk about it again. The reason hell is other people is because other people see you as an object. They see things about you you don't like, and they, they kind of convict you about it by their mere presence. A formulation like that doesn't leave a lot of space open for friendship, as you might imagine. And um, well, elsewhere, elsewhere he talks about how the gift is just attempt an attempt to control the person the gift is being given to. So he doesn't even believe in sacrifice or, or gifts or I mean, and once you get rid of sacrifice, gifts, and uh, mm. mutual presence, you've kind of destroyed the very notion of friendship. So if you want to find a healthy expression of friendship and existentialism, you really have to turn to the religious existentialists. And I think the, pl- the place to go first is Martin Buber's book, I or Thou. And mm. he, he famously sets up this dichotomy in the way we look at each other. You either look at people as a it, as an object, or you look at them as a thou, as another subject. And, you know, the difference... The difference between that makes all the difference in the world. And Buber actually goes so far as to suggest that where God lives is in the space between the I and the thou. So you see God as a thou, obviously. But when you see other people as thous too, instead of its, which I, I would say is kind of the nature of true friendship, God appears in that space. So that's Buber. And the the other place to look at, I think, is... Um, Gabriel Marcel, who is very, very much styles himself as a critic of Sartre, Marcel, for those of you who don't know, actually coined the term existentialism and then immediately disowned it. <laughs> and yet he's still considered one. Um, most of the existentialists disowned existentialism. But anyway, Mar- Marcel writes an essay that's very explicitly a reply to Sartre's views on the kind of nefariousness of gift-giving. And he, he says to some extent the same thing Buber says, but he, he, he also says that the way we make meaning out of life is in our connection to one another. So yeah, I think if existentialism is going to be compatible with any kind of notion of friendship as healthy, I think you, I think the place to turn is really Buber and Marcel.
2: Yeah, I mean, the what you're saying about Buber reminds me of a story. One of my theology professors in seminary had been a pastor actually in Tübingen in Germany, and he said that one of the sort of radical things that they did that really sort of offended the community, but it makes a lot of sense in, in the terms you just described, is that, of course, in German, there's a formal second-person pronoun and there's an informal, mm-hmm. and the the do, you know, ich du. And, you know, uh, Buber's title is the informal one. And that's really supposed to be reserved, at, at, at least as far as my professor told us, uh, for your family and for your one friend. You know, the idea in German society is that everyone has one friend and that's about it. Uh, but this church that he was pastoring, uh, he decided, all right, let's start referring to each other, not as Z, the formal second person, but as do, And he said that the folks inside were reluctant at first, but what really started, you know, some interesting talk in the community was when other people visited that church and they realized that they actually talked to each other as family. And, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, Michael, hearing you describe that, you know, where the do actually has some philosophical content as well. I mean, you know, it's, it really just sort of adds to that story in my mind.
0: Yeah, and, and I, I should point out that it is wholly inaccurate to translate it as I and thou in modern English because thou sounds so formal to us. And, of course, in uh, the forms of English that preceded the, the one we speak now, thou was the informal. It's, it's how you All would right. address your friends. So, like Walter Kaufman in his translation of I and thou, while the book is still called I and thou, he translates it as you which is, which is really really how, what we should say mm-hmm. instead of I and
2: Thou. Right, right.
0: But I and You well, doesn't sound as good on the book title.
1: See, sure. I, 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 the way I approach that is to try to bring back Thou.
0: <laughs> you know, the funniest Let's... thing about Thou, and this is such, a, such an off-topic thing, but uh, w- whatever. The funniest thing about Thou is when you go to like an old Baptist church and you see the guy praying, saying Thou because Mm -hmm. that's what the Psalms say, but he's trying to be more formal. But the whole reason the King James Mm -hmm. Bible translates the Psalms into thou instead of you is that it's informal.
1: Sure. It's one of the great
0: ironies of translation.
1: Well, one of the the first times I realized that, it was like my own private revival inside my head. (laughs) You know, That, that all along when I thought the Psalms had been formal, they were being intimate.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, the Psalms are an expression of friendship in that case. I mean, that's the idea they're trying to convey. And look, I brought it back on topic.
2: (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Well, other than the Bible,
0: we haven't really discussed any literary depictions of friendship yet. and We're literature people, so we should discuss them. Are there any that jump out at you, Nathan?
2: Yeah, uh, there's a couple. One of them I'm going to treat very briefly, and the other one I'm going to talk about at a little more length. Uh, You know, one of the things that is again, sad about modern receptions of pre-modern friendship, uh, is that we do tend to essentialize sexual identity to the extent that if there's any affection between males, uh, we assume that they must be gay. Uh, And, you know, one of the prime examples of that is the recent uh, movie version of The Merchant of Venice where uh, Jeremy Irons and Ray Fiennes... I think it's Ray Fiennes. I always forget which Fiennes I'm talking about. Anyway... Uh, my apologies to any Shakespeare movie types out there. But at any rate, you know, the DVD extras are actually fascinating because the director, who is thoroughly modern and seems intent on shocking all the Victorians out there, apparently unaware that there aren't any Victorians anymore, uh, <laughs> you know, says, well, of course they're gay. Shakespeare's writing about two gay men. But then when they talk to Jeremy Irons, who has, I would argue, a little more historical uh perspective on things he says well that's just a stupid question to ask if they're gay this is renaissance friendship uh this runs much deeper than the sort of this way or that way sexuality of the 21st century He says you know uh you need to become more aware of history if you're going to talk about uh antonio and bassanio anyway well, why that's, would an that's...
0: american become more aware of history
2: Yeah, I know. I know. It it seems unpatriotic, doesn't it? Anyway, uh, the one I'd like to talk about a little bit at length is uh, the one between Achilles and Patroclus uh, in Homer's The Iliad, because it really is sort of the classical text when the Greeks at least talk about friendship. And like I said, I think that it has crept into the way that we think about Jonathan and David, but I'll leave that for several minutes ago. Achilles and Patroclus <laughs> though, I mean they are fascinating because as Achilles basically sits in the camp and pouts uh while his fellow Greeks are slaughtered on the field by the Trojans, uh Patroclus makes a number of visits to him and you know the one thing that almost gets Achilles onto the battlefield multiple times is the shame that Patroclus puts on him. So I mean right there at the outset Uh, although Aristotle hasn't come along yet and won't for several hundred years, uh, you've got this idea of the mutual pursuit of military excellence that is defining that friendship. Uh, And of course, you know, the plot turns about two-thirds of the way through it, and what finally makes Achilles come off of his pouting bench and makes (laughs) him put on his big boy panties and get into the fight uh, is the fact that Patroclus ends up one-on-one with King Hector of Troy and is killed. And, you know, at that point, you know, the honor of battle wouldn't get Achilles onto the field. Uh, the obligation that he owed to the hegemon, uh, oh, I am wanting want to say Menelaus, but that's not it. Agamemnon uh, doesn't get him onto the field. You know, the taunts of his fellow Greeks doesn't get him onto the field. Uh, but when his friend is killed in battle, that's when Achilles simply cannot remain static anymore, and that's what spurs him on to battle. And, you know, I've got to think that when Aristotle is writing about this mutual pursuit of goodness in the Nicomachean Ethics, uh, that that story's got to be somewhere in the back of his mind, uh, that it is the mutual pursuit of that excellence Mm. that generates the affection between Achilles and Patroclus, and that makes Achilles' wrath finally turn on somebody other than his own hegemon Uh, Agamemnon, and finally against the Trojans, and of course that is in the Iliad uh, what finally turns the tide of battle when Achilles steps onto the field. Uh, David, I've rambled for entirely too long. What kind of literary (laughs) friendships do you have in mind?
1: (laughs) Um, Well, two of my favorites, uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes and Watson. Uh, I love them, uh, especially since so many depictions of Sherlock Holmes are as this kind of uh, so so cerebral that he can't relate to humans in any way. He's like a human computer. Um, In fact, uh, Conan Doyle actually described him uh, to a friend of his as a human Babbage machine, which the Babbage machine was the Victorian computer. It ran on gears. But but it was a it was like a calculating device, and he compared Sherlock Holmes to that, and so we think of him as uh, this 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 inhuman creature. But uh, if you, if you read the stories and, and read them carefully, you find that actually he and Watson did have a friendship that was meaningful. Um, in one particular story, the Adventure of the Three Garidebs, which a Garideb, thats a surname. So if you don't know what one of those is, then that's fine. You're not expected to. Um, Watson actually gets shot. And there's this moment where Holmes is intensely distraught because he thinks that Watson might be dead. And as soon as he finds out that Watson, that it's only a flesh wound, um, the reserve goes back up again. But for that moment, we get to see that back behind the curtain – Holmes is very attached to Watson, is very concerned for him. uh carries, cares about him a great deal, but his particular personality, it doesn't come out. He's Well, I guess he's sort of the opposite of the Jonathan and the David. He's so reserved that you wonder whether he likes you at all, but he really does. And uh, little moments like that, I think, uh, make, that, make that friendship interesting. And to hark, hark back to the inklings and uh, what – what Lewis said about friendship being a, 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 a pursuit of, of things that, that both people find, uh, a, a concern. Um, in Tolkien in uh, the Lord of the Rings, we have, uh, the elf Legolas and the dwarf Gimli who start off, you know, butting heads. Both of them come from, uh, cultures that, uh, you know, but well actually races that don't like each other. Um, but after, at a particular point in the story, um, Gimli expresses intense admiration for for a someone beautiful who he could not in any way possess, um, namely the, the elf queen, uh, Gladriel. And in that moment, you actually see after that this friendship forming between Legolas and Gimli, and I believe what what it was based on was that they both loved beautiful things without possessiveness. And when... When that discovery was made, a friendship that basically, in, in Middle Earth terms, lasted for the rest of time. Because when Legolas decided to sail back over, over the ocean to the Undying Lands, he actually got a dispensation to take Gimli with him. So Gimli's the only dwarf in the Undying Lands. Um, but uh, that, that little bit of friendship, um, I, I think, is kind of illustrative of what, what made the Inklings work. They, they both loved beauty.
0: Anyway, well uh, I'm an Americanist and uh, unfortunately American literature is not really known for its depictions of friendship it's it's usually much <laughs> more interested in the kind of isolated individual so you think of Benjamin Franklin fighting his way to the top alone supposedly although not really uh, you think of Thoreau going off to the uh, Going off to the Walden Pond, although he he has a friend who comes by, and in reality he was over at Emerson's house every weekend. In the book, he's alone for most of the time. You think of uh, Hester Prynne run uh, being exiled to the wilderness and not having any friends, but there are a few um, a few depictions of friendship in Moby Dick. Ishmael is very clearly best friends with Queequeg, the uh, the Polynesian harpooner. And uh, it is a it is a friendship that, to modern eyes, borders on the homoerotic. In fact, I would not say it even borders on it. Um, but th- that is a very close male friendship that is dropped unceremoniously halfway through the book because Melville decided he had better things to write about. <laughs> so that they're they best friends for about twenty chapters, and then you never you, you hear from Queequeg just a few more times. Of course, uh, Queequeg ends up kind of indirectly saving Ishmael's life at the end of that book. So uh, there, there's that. Uh, but probably the most famous depiction of friendship in American literature is uh, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, the, the friendship between Huck and Jim, this this unlikely friendship between a kind of rapscallion boy and a runaway slave. And, and that friendship is very deep. And it, it it it's very much built on the the Martin Buber I and Thou mentality. It's it's built on built on Huck's deciding to see Jim not as a runaway slave, but as his friend, as a human being. And in the end, he decides that though he will go to hell for helping Jim escape, he's willing to go to hell. Mm. And then the only other one I wanted to talk about was a little bit darker one. I've been reading Raymond Chandler lately, and eventually I'll have a blog post on him. But I've, I've been reading Raymond Chandler lately, and his last good book was called uh, The Long Goodbye. They made it into a movie, like they did most of his books. But The Long Goodbye is the only, the only one of the uh, Chandler detective novels where Philip Marlowe has a friend. and He has a friend he meets on the first page. His name is Terry Lennox. Their friendship is inexplicable. He likes Terry for reasons that are never revealed. He <laughs> suffers for Terry for reasons that are never revealed. And in the end, the friendship ends up costing him a good deal. And it, it ends up being a very sour view of friendship in the, in the end. It, it's kind of disappointing in that way. All this is to say that typically when American literature depicts friendships, uh, things don't turn out as well as, uh, as they could.
1: Well, you can't expect friendship to survive to survive noir intact.
0: It's true, <laughs> and actually, that kind of brings us to our next topic. Um, I was in my twenties before I realized that most friendships don't last a lifetime, or I was at least in my twenties before I became okay with that sad fact. David, how do we deal with the ephemeral nature of friendships? What you mean
2: Michael W. That? Smith lied to me?
0: He he did. Although, you know, maybe maybe you're friends again in the afterlife. Uh-
1: yeah you you have you have uh well you have world enough and time um in uh in that particular song we do we don't have world enough and time here um yeah that's always been a problem for me too michael um uh they're they're you know friends that i've had at different phases in, in my life that i spent all my time with them and then when i moved to the, on to the next phase i never saw them and That really bothered me for a long time. Um, I've been very, uh, very fortunate in that I've had probably a handful of friends from each phase uh, who I have kept in touch with. But it's mainly because those relationships have grown with me. Um, Most of the people that uh, I was – many of the people that I was close friends with uh, in high school. When I stu- when I kind of fell out of contact with them and it bumped into them later, all we can talk about is what's is what happened back then. Um, nothing that we have going on in life really has any connection anymore. Um, same thing with a lot of college friends, including some people that I was very close to. But um, you know, things are different. Uh, and trying to figure out uh, kind of a way, I think, for to think about that myself, um, I'll invoke Old English because I can do that. Um, <laughs> there's a word for friend in Old English. It's axleystalla, uh, which means literally the one who stands by my shoulder. And I really like that. I really like that word because I think it it perfectly images what to me friendship has been in all phases of my life. My friends have been the people that I stood shoulder to shoulder with, facing and focused on something else. Um, There was some experience that we were going through together. There was something that we were interested in mutually. And the relationship was not about me focused on the other person, but about both of us standing side by side looking at this third thing. I mean if I had to distinguish between friendship and kind of a romantic relationship – a uh, romantic relationship is more face-to-face, um, more focused on each other. Um, but friendship is shoulder-to-shoulder, um, a, a united focus on something outward. But when that outward focus, when that kind of unifying interest or setting changes, what is the friendship based on? You know, a lot of times it just goes back into mere acquaintance, or the invocation of the things that brought you together before. But if some new th- new kind of focus for friendship isn't found, it just ends up with, you know, awkward conversations about the past. And I, I don't think that's pleasant for anyone.
0: Well, I mean, how many friends do you still have from high school?
1: Um, Maybe two.
0: i, I I'm fairly convinced people don't actually have friends in high school. That, that, <laughs> I mean, I just don't. I don't think you do. And some, some people you knew in high school, you're friends with now, but mm. you became friends after high school. This is, this is my theory anyway.
2: Mm. I don't know about that. I mean, I, again, I mean, if we're going to that shoulder to shoulder metaphor that David's using, I mean, I think of the folks that I played in jazz band with as. Wait, Nathan, having, you,
0: you were in jazz
2: band. Sure. It's, <laughs> that's fun. And, you know, I think of those experiences uh, not as things that have been uh, consistent. You know, I haven't picked up a horn in probably 12 years, uh, but I do think of those experiences as partaking in something like what Aristotle was talking about. So I'm going to disagree with
1: you, Michael.
0: Maybe I just didn't have any friends.
1: <laughs> Maybe. Maybe so. <laughs> no, I, I don't feel like I had um, – there were lots of people that I had amiable relationships with. But there were very few people that I would open up to, um, if if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that would be, you know, some something that would say that that's that's a friendship versus just amiable acquaintanceship marker. Um, you know, your friends are not merely the people that you don't actively want to kill on sight. <laughs> it means something stronger than that. Um, and, and actually, sometimes
0: funny. you do actively want to kill your friends.
1: Well, that's true too. But uh, I thought it was really interesting that you brought up the boober, the do, um, uh, uh, because when I was thinking of it, it wasn't so much – friendship wasn't so much I am now as it was we and that. Uh, with the friends being together as, a, as a, a mutual we looking at this other thing, this that that they're uh, – This mutual we that they're looking at and that they're both concerned with. Um, and that's what makes them stand shoulder to shoulder is this regard for the circumstance or the interest or the concern that that leads them to stand shoulder to shoulder because they're unified in this particular relationship to something outside of um, their two single personhoods. You know, I've most of the friendships that I've had have been based on interest, you know, finding that, hey, you're interested in Tolkien too, or you're interested in Bible too, or you're interested in archeology span or, uh, I and my wife, um, I asked her out on the strength of the fact that one of her Facebook likes was giant squids. I thought (laughs) there's someone I can have a friendship with. Right. And definitely our friendship has been based on more things since then, but, um, but
0: still mostly giant squids.
1: Well, giant squids are still very important to us. (laughs)
0: Well, I didn't have any friends in high school, but I have a lot now. And I know that because when I went to Facebook earlier, it said that I had 221 friends. (laughs) I used to have even more than that, by the way, until I unceremoniously unfriended all the people from high school I have no desire ever to talk to again. I do have people on there, I should say, and I think we all do. I have people on there whom I've never met. Uh, who, who, I met, who I know from the internet, and yet I consider them to be real friends. So uh, it's a strange world we live in, Nathan, and I need you to sort it out for me. What does the internet <laughs> do to friendship?
2: I'm the village explainer, which is nice <laughs> if you're a village. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things, I think one of the distracting things, and I'm all about distractions today, I realize, but one of the distracting things about Facebook is that it does use that term friend uh, for what really ought to be a contact. Uh, and, you know, everyone that I've heard actually speak about Facebook friends, so-called, so, so called, uh, seems to fancy himself a bit of a philo- philosopher because he recognizes that something other than friendship is there uh, when you click to friend somebody. This
0: is the now same that- sort of person who thinks the matrix is deep.
2: Hey, I <laughs> used to think that. Anyway. <laughs> Anyway, (laughs) so I mean, I think that if we go beyond the simple nomenclature of Facebook, I think that we do have some interesting possibilities and some unfortunate possibilities going on there. One of the things that happens is that there is the possibility for mutual pursuit of some sort of excellence, usually some sort of intellectual excellence, because the Internet is still largely a medium of text. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like you were saying, Michael, there are all, all sorts of people, uh, whom I know mainly online, uh, for instance, Robert, who's a regular reader of our site. I've met once in Atlanta cause he was in town for a conference, but most of our conversation has happened through text. And, you know, I think that I value his contribution to my life over the last five years as a friend, you know, as much as I value a lot of the folks that I meet face-to-face, you know, around Athens, Georgia, so...
0: Or the CWC CWC guys.
2: Certainly, certainly. The CWC folks, you know, I I think of as friends. On the other hand, I think that, you know, we were talking just a moment ago about, you know, the difference between uh, romantic and, you know, uh, mutual pursuit of excellence friendships. I think that the Internet does sometimes provide an illusion of mutuality, Uh, in those focused on each other relationships, uh, for lack of a better term, I I don't know German David, so this is why I'm falling flat here. (laughs) Uh, but you know, I think that because one person can stare at the text describing a person for hours and hours that can give the illusion that you're actually spending time with that person in all of that person's complexity, uh, which I think betrays, you know, a lot of what human relationship means to say nothing about the definition of that word friendship. So, I mean, I, I, I think that time and space are the things we need to think about whenever we think about any sort of internet connection. Uh, you know, I mean, in Aristotle's day, uh, when he's mainly thinking about life in the polis, uh, he says that friends are, pe- in order to be friends, let me put it that way, uh, people must live together. So, I mean, he entirely dismisses the idea uh, that a person in Athens could be friends with a person living in Macedonia. Uh, it's just beyond his scope. I think that we need to rethink that, given uh, the tools that extend our existence, uh, to use a little bit of existentialist terminology there. Uh, that I'm rubbing that off on stuff. you guys. What now?
0: I'm rubbing off on you guys. Yeah,
2: that, that somehow extends Dasein over time and space beyond the limits of the human body. I mean, Michael, I mean, I you know, that that's sort of my initial thoughts. I mean, what do you think about Internet and friendship and all that? I think you've,
0: you've expressed it more eloquently than I'm going to be able to. I, I think it's an odd curiosity that I can't quite figure out. Uh, I, I, I do think it's lacking something, and I think if most of your friends are on the Internet— you're going to be fairly lonely.
2: That I can mm-hmm. agree with. Yeah.
0: I, think, I think it'll take you to a certain point, and then you're more miserable than you would have been if you'd just been alone.
1: Now, I don't know if you guys have ever seen it, and future employers, please don't uh, take this as, as a blanket endorsement, uh, but there is a South Park episode about Facebook <laughs> in which there is this incredibly sad little boy um, in, I guess, elementary school, middle school. I don't know what grade they are. Third and who fourth, ha- I believe. Okay. Who has a Facebook profile and he has absolutely no friends. No Facebook friends. He has no friends in real life either. And he basically spends all of his evenings staring at his Facebook profile, waiting for a friend to pop up. And then when one of the Southport boys friends him out of pity, um... You know, it revolutionizes this child's life. He starts taking his laptop with him to movies so that, uh, you know, the other kid's Facebook profile can watch the movie with him. You know, it's it's completely bizarre. But, um, yeah, kind of made the whole notion of Facebook friends friendship kind of sad to me.
0: <laughs> well, you know, the world is a sad place anyway. And speaking of sad, I regret to inform you that we are quickly running up on our time and we're going to skip the next question and go straight to the closer. We have talked about friendship in philosophy, literature, real life, and the internet. So as we wrap things up, let's get theological. Nathan, what does a specifically Christian model of friendship look like?
2: Well, I think if you're going to talk about friendship within Christianity, you've got to talk about a theology of the church. And I mean, I return to uh, Paul's prison epistles. And yes, I do call them Paul's, all you New Testament scholars out there. Uh, When he talks about the church in Ephesians and Colossians, uh, he always uses—he returns to a certain core of images, and I think those have to inform a Christian conception of friendship. One image is uh, the church is the body of the king, the body of the Messiah, the body of Christ, uh, who is constituted wherever the faithful are gathered. Second of all, he says that the church is the temple of God, built not out of bricks but out of human— lives, all right? And then the third image is uh, that the church is a nation where there are no aliens, there are only citizens, and everybody participates fully in all of the benefits of living within that kingdom. Now, I Mm -hmm. think if you put those three things together, you have a strong basis for starting to think about uh, what it means for Christians to be friends, and at the root of that uh, has to be that all of the things that Segregate us human beings. All the things that we human beings do to segregate ourselves from each other, I should put it that way be it age, be it gender, be it nationality, be it social class, all of those things, uh, Christ has basically ripped up and thrown away within the kingdom of God. And so, you know, friendship, we can't ultimately start with Aristotle because Aristotle wants to talk about inequality and equality. In Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile, there is no rich or poor, there is no barbarian or Scythian, all right? Uh, so, I mean, starting from there, starting from that radical inclus- inclusivity of the theology of the church, uh, I think that you know we can look to places like uh, Paul's discourse on agape in 1 Corinthians 13 and say, all right, the sort of mutuality we're looking for does not boast, uh, it does not seek out evil, but rejoices in the good. It does all of these things that Paul describes, and I think that that mutuality, that friendship, that philos, uh, philios, pardon me, uh, is something that ultimately within Christian theology has to bear witness to that friendship that Christ has to every one of his disciples. So, you know, I think that Christ and church and spirit and all of those things sort of roll together into anything that we can call a christian conception of friendship. Uh, Michael do you have anything that you want to expand on that with or
0: No, once again, I think you've said it more eloquently than
2: I could ever hope I, to. Well, sometimes I get to preach and <laughs> I just can't stop.
0: I, I I would I would add the uh, the title of that uh, wonderful old hymn in Christ there is no east or
2: west. Ah, yeah. I thought you were going to say what a friend we have in Jesus.
0: But we hit with that that as well. Uh That's but Uh, All I could think of was in Christ there is no east or west. Uh, Also there's a fountain filled with blood. I like that one. Alright, well that's it for this week of the Christian Humanist podcast. We will be back next week. Uh, David Grubbs will be leading a discussion on...
1: Well, I think I'm going to finally pick up the gauntlet that you you, uh, threw down earlier this summer and uh, take on comic books. Uh, Specifically, notions of comic book heroes, of superheroes. Um... We haven't done anything seriously pop culturally, and uh, well, since Victoria was here, so uh, I think that'll be fun.
2: Are you going to give us superhero names?
1: Um, I think we can do, do that. that. I think uh, I probably one of the questions will be, "What power do you want and why?" I or... think
0: I, I think it is true that we'll all be wearing bedsheet capes
1: when we're recording this <laughs> week, right? Um, now see, all my favorites are non-cape wearers, but that's okay.
0: all right well thanks for uh thanks for joining us for this episode we hope you'll turn it tune in next week you can email us if you have a question or comment at the christian at gmail.com you can visit our website which is christianhumanist.org and you can go from there to the podcast or the blog Uh, until next time i am michael farmer for where nathan gilmore and david grubbs let me say that uh, you should let your sin be strong and let your faith be stronger nothing is
2: sure nothing is pure and no matter who we think we are everybody gets a chance to be nothing Love's supposed to heal, but it breaks my heart to feel the pain in your voice. But you know, it's all going somewhere. And I would crush my heart and throw it in the street if I could pay for your choice.